It's awesome to be here with you all. To be in our Presbyterian family when we're at a Presbyterian sold-out event. (laughs) And wasn't our opening worship just right on time. You can feel the spirit within us and among us. In his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, the prescription for the cure rests with an accurate diagnosis of the disease. A people who began a national life inspired by a vision of a society of brotherhood can redeem itself, but redemption can come only through a humble acknowledgement of guilt and an honest knowledge of self. Redemption can only come through a humble acknowledgement of guilt and an honest knowledge of self. Gathering together with you in one of Reverend Dr. King's hometowns just a day after his birthday. I think we owe it to him but we also owe it to ourselves to take these words seriously. And I would say that rather than honest self-awareness of poverty and low wages, our policymakers today legislate as if inequality is not an emergency for hundreds of millions of people. Rather than a humble acknowledgement of the immorality of abandonment in the midst of abundance, many of our churches preach that there will be pie in the sky when we die. But that's a lie. As a people, too often we believe that we can claim to be Christian just by going to church on Sunday. Rather than dedicating ourselves to the issues that Jesus cared most about every day of the week. Given the scale of poverty, of racism, of inequality, their structural causes today, our nation falls short of an accurate diagnosis let alone a prescription for the cure. We live in the richest country in human history, where poverty is the fourth leading cause of death. More than homicide, Alzheimer's, diabetes, most of the things that we think are the biggest, deadliest things in our nation. We live in a country that throws out more food that could feed not just everyone that's hungry here, but across the world. And yet there are 45 million people regularly experiencing hunger and food insecurity at this moment. There are nearly 80 million people uninsured or underinsured. There are 10 million people living without housing or on the brink of homelessness. And our American education system continues to score near the bottom compared to 37 countries. 
the richest countries in the world. Yet somehow, there is so little talk of issues of poverty and food insecurity, low wages, and even fewer structural solutions offered. In reality, the poor have become a four-letter word in today's vocabulary. Following decades of trickle-down economic approaches, neoliberalism, stagnating wages, rising household debt, and then despite the fact that our sacred texts lift up the poor more than anything else. The Bible is one of the only media sources that has anything good to say about the poor. Jesus himself was homeless. He led a movement of poor people to bring a justice of earth, justice, reign of justice here on earth. But how is it that we, including us Christians, have become comfortable separating Jesus and justice? Which brings us to Matthew 25. One of the most famous passages about poverty and justice in the Bible. One that I got a little tired of before our church decided to take it up. <laughs> and the biblical inspiration for this summit here today. I want to think a little bit about that scene from the gospel text that we heard earlier. The Son of Man and his messengers sitting in front of all the nations gathered. You see, my, my daughter, Sophia, meaning divine wisdom, is in a technical theater program at her high school. She's into set design and all of those background settings. Now that she's there, I pay a little more attention to what's happening in the background. I've heard from her and I've seen it for myself that the setting of a story matters. And in this scene, Jesus is gathered with the nations around. The first thing that we get wrong often when we talk about Matthew 25 is that it's a message for individuals. Even for individual congregations or soup kitchens or prison ministries. Rather, Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus is speaking to the nations. Perhaps even especially those with the political and economic power in those nations to meet the needs of the people. The very same nations that are oppressing and subjugating the people in Jesus' time. Maybe in ours today as well. So we hear in Matthew 25 that these nations are denying people health care, ignoring the hungry, they're locking people up and throwing away the key, they're deporting the immigrant and the stranger, they're evicting people rather than housing them, and they're taking away the very life-supporting policies that could actually lift the load of poverty. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Not so far away in our setting anymore, are we? So in Matthew 25, when he's gathered with all of these political and religious leaders from the nations, Jesus raises then what matters most to him, 
what matters most to God. Now I have a spoiler alert. The issues that Jesus holds dear, they're not about gun rights. They're not waving flags, determining who gets to marry whom. They're not about politicians picking their voters rather than voters electing their leaders. They're not about controlling women's bodies or people who can get pregnant. They're not about banning books or looking away from violence and genocide or harassing and threatening LGBTQIA youth. No, the Bible is pretty clear. Those issues are the work, the law of empire. And Jesus is clear about that even if some who claim to follow him aren't. Rather, Jesus' main concerns are food, sustenance, immigrant rights, health care, an adequate standard of living, decent housing, prison abolition, all of those issues that we heard in that opening video. And Jesus' priority are the people who are most impacted by the lack of food, or housing, or all forms of marginalization, invisibility, and discrimination. Those are the ones that are closest to God and Jesus himself. And before any of us get worried and think that saying that God's concern for the least of these is too exclusive or puny or not universal enough, for those who think proclaiming that black lives matter signifies less significance on brown or indigenous or even white people's lives. Those who worry that God's preferential option for the poor means less love or blessings for those who are middle income or college educated or with less student debt than those who qualify for Pell Grants we would do well to remember that Jesus suggests starting from the bottom. Bottom up, not top down, not middle out, bottom up. In Matthew 25, we hear, in fact, that when you lift from the bottom, everybody rises. When you lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And we also learn that the least of these are actually most of us. After all, sociologist Mark Rank, a friend of ours from Cornell University, reminds us that 80% of Americans will struggle to make ends meet at some point in our lives. As we heard from Occupy Wall Street, that 99% of the population, even more than that, are not benefiting fully from God's abundance. Or what we maybe picked up from COVID, that as long as even one person lacks health care, our whole society is sick. In fact, economists from the Economic Policy Institute, the Institute for Policy Studies, many others tell us that the cost of poverty is far greater than the cost of ending it. Do you know that our nation wastes $1 trillion a year because kids are poor? When it 
saves us $7 for every dollar we spend ending child poverty. That means that what is good for low-wage workers and the unhoused or those with inadequate health care redounds to the benefit of the whole society. The message of Matthew 25 is when a nation enacts jubilee, the whole society flourishes. As long as we forgive debts and free those in bondage and pay workers a living wage and give to others without any expectation that we'll be paid back, as long as we care for each other in times of crisis, when we build a movement of those considered expendable, when we confront the powers and principalities, when those wounded by deep social and economic wounds heal through mutual solidarity and moral action, we can end poverty. We can achieve justice. There will be no poor among you. We're also warned, though, that if we refuse to organize our society, our nation, around the needs of the poor, rather than the endless systemic greed of the powerful, that poverty and want will never be banished, and we will abandon Jesus among the poor and dispossessed of our society. I believe it must be said, God does not condone poverty nor suggest that it's inevitable. Christ Jesus does not proclaim, I didn't make enough food for everyone to eat. That's us putting it on God. Nowhere does God say, my abundance will trickle down from the rich to the rest. That's us putting it on God. The Bible does not proclaim that a little charity is as good as it gets. That's us thinking we can play God. Nowhere do we find teachings that justify war, protect guns over kids, threaten people, is anything other than going against God. And as we all know, Jesus traveled around the countryside setting up free health care clinics never charging a leper a copay. So why in the hell do some of the richest corporations in the world get to profit off of our death and misery? We must remember the God we follow cries out, I am the one who led you out of Egypt. That's how God names God's self to us. That God reminds us that how we treat the poor, how we treat the immigrant neighbor, is actually how we honor and worship God. That's what Matthew 25 says. It's echoed throughout all of the Bible, lest we forget. I grew up pretty well-versed in the Bible. Church was my second home from a very young age. I was teaching Sunday school at age 13. I was ordained as a deacon at 16. 
But it wasn't until some so-called Christian leaders started warping biblical messages of abundance for all, weaponizing our sacred texts to justify blaming the poor for poverty, that I realized that I maybe needed to read this Bible a little more clearly. I wanted to understand what Jesus really said, and perhaps more importantly, what we Christians are required to do. As I got more involved in both organizing as well as biblical interpretation, I began to see some real parallels. The moral and political agency of the poor and homeless organizing a movement today looked pretty much like that leadership and agency of those early Christians setting up mutual aid societies, burial associations among the poor. They were forced to live without adequate housing or food or education or health care. They protested injustice. What do we think turning over the tables is if it isn't a massive act of civil disobedience? And as I explored the development of that early Christian movement, I saw that both back then and today, we as a people, as a movement committed to justice, have to figure out how to meet each other's needs and then keep on fighting. I also learned about a battle for the Bible throughout our history. How enslavers produced a Bible that excluded the Exodus, that took away the prophets, that erased Jesus' inaugural sermon about preaching good news to the Patokos, those who have been made poor and captive to racism and injustice. I read about how abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Moses Tubman called forth a freedom church tradition, referencing biblical tradition teachings that proclaimed liberty throughout the land. I learned about a social gospel proponents preaching res responsibility and bounty and abundance, that abundance we were singing about for all. And it's that vision of abundance I think we have to keep with us and then the path to get it and achieve it for everyone. If we are to follow God's economy, there is no poverty. There is no hunger. There is no homelessness. And then that absence of poverty isn't just about an absence of poverty. It's about a presence of justice. Maybe you've heard that quote from Dr. King, that peace is not just the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. Maybe you've heard from Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative that the opposite of poverty isn't wealth, it's justice. That's what we're getting at in this Matthew 25 summit. That's what it is to be a Matthew 25 church. Just a few chapters before Matthew 25, Jesus has raised this critique. He says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, righteousness, faithfulness. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. The day after King Day? What's that saying? It's easier to build a monument to our fallen heroes 
than to continue the movement that they were on? Matthew 23. We have to address the current crisis of racism and poverty and injustice with the urgent attention of building a beloved community for all time. And that means enacting universal health care and living wages and debt relief and housing rights for all. It includes holding those in power accountable, demanding that the rich and powerful don't get to profit off of our suffering and pandemic and climate change and war and genocide while the poor and oppressed of the world suffer. We have to remember that our society can indeed abolish racism, end poverty, turn militarism and our war economy into a peace economy, and protect the earth. If we follow the prophet's call to transform distorted narratives that demean and degrade, and we organize and organize and organize and organize, we can bring about a moral revolution of values that proclaims that all life is sacred. But if we fail to realize this, we have not just let ourselves down. We fail God. We let Jesus down. And we allow children to, allow, to suffer needlessly. I want to end with one more quote from Dr. King. Sometimes it's not the Dr. King we hear about, but it's the one that's so needed at this time. White supremacy and violence when the earth is groaning and millions are being pushed into poverty and misery. He said, God has left enough and to spare in this world for all his children to have the basic necessities of life. God never intended for some of his children to live in inordinate superfluous wealth while others live in abject deadening poverty. And somehow I believe that God made it all. I believe firmly that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And since we didn't make these things by ourselves, we must share them with each other. And I think this is the only way we're going to solve the basic problems and the restructuring of our society, which I think is so desperately needed. We need everyone here everyone gathered in line in our Cairo Center family. We welcome you all into the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. We're building a moral movement led by those most impacted. In the words of Frederick Douglass, those who would be free must strike the first blow. We're addressing interlocking injustices of racism and poverty, ecological devastation, militarism, and the false narrative of white Christian nationalism. We're choosing life. We're choosing truth and justice and peace. We're solving basic problems, and we're restructuring our society around the people. I want to invite you that we have biblical and theological resources to use in your congregations. We gather every Wednesday for Bible study, every Sunday for the Freedom Church of the Poor services. We're organizing with other Christians united to defend American democracy, sponsoring congregational renewal programs to counter the impact of racial and religious nationalism in our communities. And with the state coordinating committees of the Poor People's Campaign, we're mobilizing to hold state assemblies in 30 state capitals this March 2nd. 
We're crying out to all who have ears to hear to fight poverty, not the poor. Fight poverty. Fight poverty. Fight poverty. Ending poverty is possible, but only if we organize a movement. That movement is about making Jesus' Matthew 25 vision and demands a reality. It's joining with poor and impacted people who are leading the way towards justice. Nothing about us without us is for us. And the work is not easy. It takes persistence and commitment. But we can make it if we try. God requires this of us. And so, what are we to do but to join God? Amen.